Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Sky Delmeda to the show. Sky Delmeda is a senior vice president in Macquarie's Green Investment Group, where she leads investor coverage for the Americas. Sky has spent the last 13 years working in sustainable infrastructure and energy for private, government, and nonprofit organizations. In her role at Macquarie, Sky manages relationships with pension funds, infrastructure funds, private equity funds, and strategic investors looking to acquire green assets developed by the Green Investment Group. In prior roles, she co-created a sustainable infrastructure investment program for some of the world's largest cities and worked for the Australian government on international clean energy negotiations and renewables investment incentive programs. Sky, how are you doing today? I'm great, Raj. Thanks for having me. How are you? Sky, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for joining. Sky, where are you currently located? Well, normally I'm located in New York, but I'm currently in California. And how's the weather in California? It's it's a little grey today, actually, a little bit chilly, but it's certainly better than New York is today. <laughs> so I don't want to rub in too much for my, my colleagues still in New York. I heard they've had quite a storm out there. Yeah, yeah, they've really um, they've had a lot of snow. And I certainly, when I saw the videos of people playing uh, in, where was it, Washington Square Park, having a big snowball mm-hmm. fight. I was kind mm. of sad I missed out on that, but um, that's really only fun for about five minutes and then you just got to deal with everything else that comes with the snow in New York. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, I guess one of the benefits right now, again, trying to find the silver lining during this COVID is people aren't commuting as much. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And And the commute, you know, you jammed on a... And it's great. I mean, public transit's fantastic in New York, but yeah, you're jammed on subway cars, and um, and then you usually have quite a bit of walking to do. And when it's snowy and icy and that sort of brown slush that you left with after snowstorms, it's it's not that much fun. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, Sky, I like to open the show by asking the following question: If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Well. I love to surf and that in and of itself is probably not that interesting, but I guess the the mildly interesting part is that I've set myself a challenge for 2021 to enter an amateur surf competition by the end of this year and I'm doing it to raise money for, for two nonprofits along the way. So I've been surfing for about, it's around nine years now, but five of them I spent in New York and didn't really get to surf much during that time. So haven't really reached a level that I'm happy with. And so I decided this year to, to try to push myself to 
to get to a level where I could actually participate in a competition and, and not make an absolute fool of myself and also use it as a, a chance to raise money for two very worthy nonprofits that are close to my heart. So when is the competition? And please share some information regarding the nonprofits. Yes. Well, so the competition, I'm trying to make it as late in the year as possible because I need every every day that's available to me to to practice and get better. Um, so yet to actually select the competition, I think it's probably going to be around November or December this year. Um, and I'm working with two nonprofits, one um, Surf Aid, who's actually working with me to find the right competition. Um, and so Surf Aid, they're they focus on health initiatives in remote communities and they're an interesting one. They were founded 20 years ago. Um, with a, It was started by a doctor and a surfer who discovered really high mortality rates in remote communities near where he liked to surf, primarily in Indonesia, but they've since broadened their work. And I connected with them late last year through a fundraiser and was looking for a way to support them again this year. And then the second one is... Friends of the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, and um, that's a US nonprofit dedicated to Australian wildlife conservation. And I serve on their board, and I've been trying to think of creative ways to raise more money for them. And and that's really how this this surf challenge came about. Um, so they, you know, their work really focuses on conservation in Australia, which is important to me as an Australian, but it's also globally relevant in terms of biodiversity. Um, you know, some fun facts that, you know, of all the species on the earth, 87% of mammals, 93% of reptiles and 94% of frog species are only found in Australia. And there's a pretty, pretty high extinction rate, unfortunately. So um, conservation efforts of nonprofits like these are, are pretty important and I'm excited to raise money for them. It sounds like a great cause. If we rewind the clock to January of 2020, Mm-hmm. Some of us thought that the wildfires in Australia would be the worst thing that would happen that year. Oh, I know, I know. And they were. I mean, they were absolutely shocking. I was I was back in Australia around that time and, um, you know, lots of homes destroyed, lives lost. And in terms of wildlife, I think um, the last stats I saw was sort of over a billion animals perished in the fires and just a huge amount of destruction to natural habitat. So, um, Friends of the Australian Wildlife Conservancy are working with local conservation nonprofits in Australia to try to regenerate the areas that were burnt and and sort of conserve the animals that didn't perish. But yeah, you're right. We all thought that that was the worst thing to happen in 2020, and oh, boy, were we wrong. I know. Um, you know, I have young children and couldn't get enough of them watching the videos with the koala bears reaching out to people. And there's one that went around with the bicyclist, you know, uh, providing water for the, for the bears. And it was just, it was amazing and sad at the same time. You mentioned the amount of species that's there. Do you know over the past year, if they've been to recover and rehabilitate, rehabilitate any of those animals? Yeah, it's, there's a lot of great stories about, um, the rehabilitation of certain areas and and um, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, they actually, uh, they're, they're a bit similar to the Nature Conservancy here in the US where they buy up large, um, large areas of land and they actually end up fencing the land, removing all feral, feral, feral animals and feral predators and um, 
they they were really fortunate in that none of their conservation areas were actually damaged by the fires, so they were able to sort of protect those those fragile ecosystems from the fires, which was great. Um, but also some of the areas like Kangaroo Island, you know, they were really decimated and there's been some good stories about certain emu species and marsupials coming back from from the brink so you know certainly a lot of damage but also some good stories coming out of out of the fires that's wonderful to hear and regarding surf aid you mentioned helping remote communities is that correct yeah yes they it's it's very health focused and so um you know i think the angle around surfing a lot of a lot of the places people like to surf are actually very remote areas and and particularly in indonesia there was there's pretty high um mother and infant mortality rates still so their work's really focusing in on it's it's a lot of local capacity building which i really like it's it's not sort of parachuting in people from around the world to try to solve a problem on behalf of the locals. It's it's working very closely with the locals to, to train them up and come up with sort of solutions that work within that cultural context. And um, so they do a lot of work around health and sanitation um, in Indonesia, but they've also expanded to Latin America. And I believe there's somewhere else that they've recently announced that I'm drawing a blank well, thank you for sharing that information. You know, feel free to share the links with me. I'll put them in the show notes and, you know, the audience can feel free to contribute how they can once you identify your competition. Thanks. Thanks so much, Raj. I'd, I'd love that. Any donations would be welcome. So, yes, I'll, I'll share a link with you. Well, I appreciate it. Now, I'm going to take what's a hard right turn here and ask you to give the audience an overview of your current, the current organization where you're working and your role at the organization. Yes, so my current organisation is the Green Investment Group. Um, my role is I, I cover investors for North America and Latin America and I can, I can expand on what that means in a moment but maybe it makes more sense to start with what the Green Investment Group is. And so uh, the Green Investment Group or GIG as we call it, it's part of Macquarie Group and Macquarie is a global diversified financial group and, and actually one of the world's, well, no, we are the world's largest infrastructure investor. So we're a listed company. We were founded 51 years ago in Australia and subsequently grown to over 16,000 staff across 31 markets. And in the Americas, where I focus, we've got around two two and a half thousand staff at last count and about a third of Macquarie's income is, is generated in the Americas. So that's Macquarie. Um, the Green Investment Group is part of Macquarie and, and it's the dedicated principal investing business that focuses on green assets. So we're investing Macquarie's balance sheet capital um, and we're in the business of asset creation. And when I talk about assets, I'm not, I'm not talking about financial products. I'm talking about physical green infrastructure assets like solar farms, wind farms, battery storage assets, waste energy facilities, and so on. And so the Green Investment Group invests Macquarie's balance sheet to develop and build these green assets. So we're investing DevEx and construction equity to, to take these assets from concept stage through to operations. And that's where I come in. Um, my job is to raise other equity to either come in alongside the Green Investment Group as our partner or to acquire the assets from us once we've done our work to sufficiently de-risk those assets. 
So we're, we're really in the business of creating green assets for long-term investors and it's my job to, to know who these long-term investors are and, and what they need. So a couple of questions. So obviously you're investing in steel in the ground projects. That's right. Can you, can you give an ex- example or two of some of the projects you've invested in? And second part of the question, before I forget it, is that have you seen or has it been easier for you to find you know, partnerships or partners to invest alongside you since you started at Macquarie? Sure. Yes. I mean, there's a couple of examples in, well, we can focus on the Americas. We've done a, a lot of work in, in Asia and Europe and, and other regions on offshore wind and waste energy facilities and onshore renewables. In the Americas, um, you know, we, we developed a 200 megawatt wind farm in Texas that I helped sell to a Canadian fund. We developed um, a 60 megawatt energy storage portfolio in California that I helped sell to um, two foreign investors. Um, and more recently, we acquired, so so our business is investing in assets and we'll create these single assets and, and sell those. Um, but we also create development platforms. And so we recently acquired um, a a team and a development pipeline of utility scale solar in the US and we we branded that Savion Energy and we've subsequently grown it to a team of over 100 solar developers and they've got about 8,600 megawatts of solar in development right now across 69 projects and another 2,600 megawatts of, of storage in development across 35 projects. So that that one's that's been a, a really it's a fun one to be involved in because we're really trying to build out this this large scale US utility scale, um, utility solar developer and selling single assets out of as they develop them and as they sufficiently de-risk those assets it's my job to to help sell those assets so that's the first part of your question I think the second part was how how easy is it to find these investors um, and. It's a good question because I think when I started in this role, I, I started in a different part of Macquarie. I was doing investor coverage, but it was for our advisory business. But but back then, that was about four years ago, I was still talking to investors about renewables. It was just that we were advising them on acquiring renewables. Um, in my current role, it's it's you know we're not advising; we're actually just selling these these renewable assets. Um, but four years ago, when I was talking to investors about renewables. There was certainly appetite from some infrastructure investors, but I wouldn't say it was widespread. And it's it's unbelievable to see the change just in the last four years and, and particularly in the last 12 months. The level of appetite to invest in green assets has just grown exponentially and um, it, it makes my job a little easier to some extent, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> um, umbrellas in the rain. I still have to work pretty hard to find the right partner or the right investor and, and at the right price. Thank you for sharing that. You know, you mentioned storage, and I know there's a lot of conversation around storage right now. I've heard it being called the um, third leg of the stool, if you will. What are your just personal views, again, not representing Macquarie, but your personal views or thoughts around storage and where you think it is in its maturity cycle? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting area because, you know, we're seeing increasingly states and countries adopting ambitious green energy targets and 
you know, some of them targeting 100% renewables, 100% green by 2030, 2040, 2050. And storage is obviously a really key part of that just to deal with the sort of variability and intermittency of, of renewables. Um, I actually think there, there was a great piece of work done by Bloomberg NEF, I think they like to be called now, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. I don't know if you saw this one. This was back in, I think, November last year, and they looked at the combination of, of solar and storage and whether it could actually compete with um, gas, so both open cycle and, and combined cycle gas. And I thought what was very interesting about the analysis was that they actually found that utility-scale solar and, and storage is already um, a cost-competitive alternative to the majority of new gas peakers in the U.S., um, and they they found that you know you can get to about seventy to eighty percent renewables um, with existing solar and storage technologies, um, and and do so cost competitively. There's obviously you know the, that other twenty percent that we need to think about, and I think there's there's other technologies that are going to be important um, for that twenty percent. But storage is, yeah, it's really a key a key piece if we're to decarbonise our grid. And I'm personally very excited about finding ways to deploy more storage at scale. I am too. And to see, you know, all these new companies recently that have come up on the horizon or have been perhaps in skunk works, it's just, it's so exciting right now. Every other, to your point, every other article now or conversation I'm having is around storage. And most recently I spoke with a gentleman who's out in California, I'm guessing not too far from where you are, just about two or three weeks ago. And he was telling me about the public safety shutoffs that were going on and about storage out there. And we were talking about storage capacity and how he feels that, you know, like four hours is the sweet spot. But it's just fascinating to see this industry almost like bloom overnight. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's been a lot of hard work over the last, you know, multiple decades. When I started in this space about 13 years ago, we were looking at, um, some alternative storage technologies and and the costs were prohibitively high and and fortunately we've really seen those costs come down and so storage has become a, an economic and viable option now. I think seasonal storage is, still needs a lot of work and a lot of people are very focused on that. Um, but yes, those sort of four to six hour storage solutions are are available now and it's time to get investing. It sure is. So going back to when you started in this space and, you know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. What attracted you to this sector and why? What's your drive? What drives you? Yeah, it, it's actually quite intentional that I'm that I'm working in this role at Macquarie. It didn't happen by accident. It's, uh, it, like I said, I actually, I started in sustainability about 13 years ago and I was, I mean, I was raised by parents who were, who were environmentally conscious. I wouldn't say they, you know, they weren't hippies. I get, I get often, often I get asked if they were hippies with a name like Sky, but, you know, they, they cared about the environment and they cared about biodiversity. So from a young age, I was pretty focused on, on nature and the environment, but I didn't plan to study or pursue a career in that space. And it actually wasn't until I saw um, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth um, that I actually decided to pursue this career path. So um, filmmakers out there, you can have a pretty big impact. Um, 
I, yeah, I actually, I remember being in the cinema and I was, I was crying and I left feeling utterly panicked and completely consumed thinking about, you know, what can I do and how can I help? And eventually that led me to apply for a job in climate policy for the Australian government. So uh, that was back in 2008 when I took that role. And through that role and subsequent roles prior to Macquarie, you know, we were doing great work around climate policies and incentive programs and R&D programs, but we just kept coming up against the same issue time and time again. And, And that was really an issue around how do you actually attract the large scale private investment needed to deliver the scale of of climate solutions required, you know, it became very apparent that government funding alone wasn't going to get us there and we needed private capital and we needed large sums of private capital. But in talking to a lot of the people around me, I realised not many actually knew how to access that capital. And so that was, yeah, that was a bit of an aha moment for me where I realised I needed to understand how capital markets work and how investors make decisions So so I went and studied a Master of Finance and then I was fortunate enough to get a role at a climate change nonprofit called C40 Cities. Um, And if you're not familiar with their work, Raj, definitely definitely look them up after this because I honestly can't speak highly enough of of C40 and the work they do. Um, So I was in Sydney at the time. The job was in New York. I packed my two suitcases and, and moved to the US and um I I literally had two suitcases my whole life was in those two suitcases (laughs) and uh yeah and then at C40 I I helped set up a new sustainable finance program where we were working with the mayors of some of the world's largest cities around the world to to help them think about sustainable infrastructure investment for their cities and, and how to access private capital um and that work was it was extremely rewarding but the role at Macquarie came along and I just I honestly couldn't think of a better way to learn how investors make decisions than to work for one. So I took the role at Macquarie and I make it sound easy as though they just hand it to me, but uh, <laughs> I certainly had to convince them to hire me. Um, but but if I'm honest, I, I took the role at Macquarie as a bit of a learning opportunity and I wasn't really sure if I'd stay long term. I didn't know if I wanted to be a banker, but um, I have stayed and and that's because the work is interesting and I have great colleagues and I have a great boss, but most importantly, um, it's because I feel like the work is impactful. You know, I'm part of a, a dedicated green investment team. It's actually a global team of over 450 people now who are exclusively focusing on creating and investing in new green assets and, and building the assets that we need. So... Um, we've invested or arranged close to 10 billion in green projects um, in just the last three years. And we have over 30 gigawatts of renewables in, in development. So, and we are also, we're, we're working on other new green asset classes and we've got a creative and clever team of technology and finance experts who are really helping to prove out the bankability of these newer green opportunities and in my role in particular, I feel like I'm, I'm really getting to the bottom of this question that I started with around how do you attract large-scale private investment in climate solutions. So it sounds like you found a home, at least for now. But I <laughs> want to go back to um, the Al Gore movie. You said you were crying when you walked out. <laughs> yes. Do you remember specifically what or the scenes that you know moved you? 
You know, that it was such a it was a, a documentary where it was really just heavy on data and charts and I just I hadn't I didn't feel like I'd really been exposed to the the scale of the challenge and and so it wasn't necessarily a scene, it was just they did such a good job at presenting all of this this information and by the end of it you just I felt so overwhelmed and and panicked. Quite honestly, I was sitting next to my brother and, and we were both, we just sort of looked at each other and thought, oh, gosh, like we're all doomed. <laughs> what can we do? <laughs> you also said that you wanted to, to figure out how capital markets and financial professionals, what makes them tick is my word for it, or mm-hmm. what makes them invest. What have you found? Yeah, I mean, there's a few, there's a few pieces that I've worked out and I think Part of it is is what makes them tick and, yeah, exactly, what drives their decisions and and I think there's some common themes there but it does, it you know, it obviously varies depending on what kind of investor they are, you know. VC investors are different to growth equity investors who are different to private equity investors who are different to, you know, your core infrastructure investors. Um but there's so there's this piece around what what they want, and I'll come back to that. There's also, I think, this piece around the language that they speak. You know, I was working with in government. I was working with um, other people in government, and then with industry. And then when I was working in the nonprofit, I was working with mayors and and their kind of equivalent of the CFO of the cities, and there was this real disconnect in in the kind of terminology and language that people used versus what you know the private financiers used and and it felt like people were just talking past each other and didn't totally understand what the other party wanted so that was part of it for me was you know i need to learn how to speak their language i need to learn how they think and what drives their decisions and then hopefully i can be more impactful in in trying to i think bridge that gap between the various parties who have the projects and the parties who want to invest in those projects so but on the piece around you know what is it that investors want i think the a key lesson for me has been if you can make climate solutions look like infrastructure, there's an abundance of capital, you know, private capital ready to invest. And, and when I say infrastructure, I'm talking about assets with long operational lives, with very stable, predictable cash flows. So, you know, you can think about a toll road where you have an availability payment from the government. And as the investor, you know, upfront, you have a 40-year contract with an investment-grade counterparty that tells you that if you provide an agreed level of service, you'll get a pre-agreed level of payment every year for that 40 years. And pension funds and other infrastructure investors, they love those assets and they'll write those checks all day, every day. Uh, So if you can make your green asset or your climate solution as low risk and as boring as a toll road, you'll you'll have investors lining up to take it off your hands. Boring is beautiful in the eyes of infrastructure investors. And I think that's really why we're seeing so much demand for long-term contracted renewables. You know, they're not sexy. They're, they're pretty vanilla assets. And, and that's really the goal. It's to de-risk the assets as much as possible and sell to low-risk, low-cost-of-capital investors like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, insurance funds and, and core infrastructure investors. But, but sometimes these vanilla, low-risk infrastructure assets are, are rare in the green space and it, it can be difficult to 
to structure certain green assets in this way. You know, the length of power purchase agreements is coming down over time and investors are increasingly being asked to take merchant power risk. But also with newer technologies, there can be more uncertainty around the long-term performance of the assets. You know, what, what do revenues look like in 15 years' time? What's the availability or the cost of inputs and so on? So in some cases, it can be a little more challenging, but it's certainly not impossible. And I think this is really where Macquarie excels. It's finding ways to structure and de-risk new asset classes to make them look as much like infrastructure as possible. <laughs> I, I like that idea of making them look like infrastructure. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Boring is beautiful. So speaking of long-term and Macquarie, I don't expect you to speak for Macquarie or the Green Investment Group. So I'm going to ask for your broad overall thesis. You know, it's 2030. How have you seen perhaps infrastructure investing change in the next 10 years? especially green infrastructure investing? Yeah, it's it's certainly, it's already changing and I think the definition of infrastructure has, has been changing and I suspect that that will continue. You know, traditionally infrastructure was, you know, the toll roads I mentioned, airports, um, large-scale power plants, utilities, and they had to really meet some some pretty specific criteria around, you know, being natural monopolies or having some kind of um, barriers to entry so that you, you, did, you were satisfied that you had predictable revenue for 30, 40 years and, and weren't going to be undermined by other competition. So I think that, that is, that's certainly changed and you're seeing some of the infrastructure funds and, and some of the pensions and sovereign wealth through their infrastructure allocations actually looking at businesses that businesses and assets that don't necessarily have all of those features so there's a bit more flexibility around what they're including in in their infrastructure um, allocations or in their infrastructure funds i think that's going to continue but but i think in by 2030 just esg has already become extremely topical and we're seeing a couple of funds pension funds sovereign wealth funds infrastructure funds making climate commitments or raising dedicated pools of capital for for renewables or other green solutions and i i expect that that is going i'd be very surprised in 2030 if every one of the institutional investors doesn't have some form of commitment or some form of dedicated capital focusing in on on ESG and climate solutions. There's just already huge demand um, for assets that that sort of tick those boxes in terms of ESG and, and that's going to grow. And I think the challenge on our side for the Green Investment Group and others like us is to keep up with that demand and, and to keep developing those assets that are low risk enough and and you know, meet the fiduciary responsibilities of investors, but um, also, you know, meet all the ESG criteria that they're they're adopting. You know, I would second that ESG piece. Larry Fink has written, you know, two letters recently, one last year, one this year, where he's emphasized, called out essentially the, you know, ESG sector and how if companies don't start thinking about it, they are essentially going to be left behind. So absolutely double click on that. Yeah, it's really, I mean, and it's just, in my mind, my personal view is it's just another, it's just being prudent about risk management and 
if you're not already thinking about climate, then I don't think you're effectively managing the risks of your assets under management and and future assets that you you intend to invest in. So, um, it and also I mean increasingly there's there's research suggesting that it goes hand in hand. You know, factoring in climate risk and ESG actually is um, has financial returns and and certain ESG investments are outperforming traditional investments. So there's there's the added advantage of potentially earning a higher return from ESG strategies. That's not always the case, but at a very minimum, like at an absolute minimum from a risk management perspective, everyone should really be thinking about climate already. Well, that's a great piece of advice leads to my last question, which is more specifically, if you could share some advice could be professional or personal with the audience, what would it be? Oh, I think it's not my advice. It's it's advice. It's a piece of advice that's been rattling around in my head lately. And it's something that are you I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Diamandis Raj. He's he's an entrepreneur. I'm, Do you know I am I yes. I've read his books. Yes. Okay. So um you know, he talks a lot about taking moonshots and I guess for, for the benefit of your listeners who don't know Peter, um, it's probably fair to say he's a techno-optimist and, and maybe he's a little too optimistic for some people, but I think we could all use a little optimism <laughs> right now. Um, and I, I really like the way he approaches disruptive thinking and, you know, he knows on a personal level and in a business capacity Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Larry Page and Richard Branson. And he spent a lot a lot of time looking at what all four of them have in common, you know, what are their common traits. And one of the things he concluded was that all four took plenty of what he terms moonshots, meaning that when their peers were thinking about incremental growth and incremental improvement, these four were, were shooting for the moon and disrupting entire industries. So they were, you know, they were the ones pursuing the the so-called crazy ideas. And, and Peter has a nice quote that, you know, the day before something is a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. So you know, I think the, the advice that he gives really distills down to instead of thinking about 10% bigger or 10% better, think 10 times bigger or better. So he says that 1,000% is 100 times greater than 10%, but it's generally not 100 times harder to achieve. And, you know, it's really these 1,000% improvements that, that have impact and that's the scale of impact that we need to address climate change. So I've really started challenging myself to think bigger in terms of impact and, and I guess that's the piece of advice that I'm focusing in on, on at the moment. I like that. I think between Kurzweil, Cutler and Diamandis, we're going to live forever and uh, Neuralink soon. <laughs> yeah, we've got an interesting future ahead of us. And and there is that quote about, you know, history bending towards the unreasonable man or something like that. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, but since you mentioned it and you said 100x, what are you thinking about 100xing? Oh, that's a work in progress, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know as soon as I, find, I, I figure what, out what that is. I mean, I, I've, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, 
my experience, the investor relationships that I've sort of built over time. You know, it's really been my job to get out and get to know over 200 investors who are sort of writing equity checks anywhere from 5 million to 500 million. And so, you know, there's scope to have a lot of impact there. We're talking about collectively trillions of dollars under management and and they all want to deploy that capital into climate solutions. And so I think within the Green Investment Group, we're really trying to tap into that and, and I believe we are, we are going to have a pretty significant impact going forward. But, yeah, on a personal level, uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still working through what my moonshot looks like. Well, let's go back to the beginning of our conversation where you spoke about raising money for the two nonprofits. Mm. Have you thought <laughs> about how much you want to raise this year? Um, I have, I have. I mean, I'm starting with a pretty modest target of 20000 for this year. Um, but, you know, Raj, maybe you're right. Maybe I need to tap modesty, into the trillion. <laughs> mod- modesty doesn't align with what you just said. <laughs> you're absolutely right. So I need to think bigger. I need to take my own advice here. Honestly, add a, like, z- add sorry, a zero Tom. and put it up. Add a zero and put it out in the universe. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Let's see. It's it's the nonprofits, those two nonprofits. I mean, there's so many amazing nonprofits out there doing phenomenal work. And, and those two I really you know, are very close to my heart. Um, but there's other ways that I'd like to help in addition to like through my career and through supporting nonprofits um, and building networks. But yeah, it's it's all it's a work in progress in the back of my brain right now. Well, Sky, I hope you blow it out of the water. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I look forward to checking back with you later this year to check on your goal. Thanks so much, Raj. Thanks again for inviting me and, and this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Sky. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.